Man, I, I love walking through the halls on Wednesday night. There's all kinds of stuff going on around here. There's D groups meeting, and uh, I walked past a room behind the old, behind the chapel where the single adults are meeting, and I'm walking, and as I'm coming down the hall, there's a sign there that says flop. And I'm thinking, I could teach that class. I know how to be a flop. Until I got up there and it meant finding life on purpose. I thought, what a great class. And then I walked my granddaughter over to the edge tonight. Middle school and high school students, both from this campus and from Grovetown, are meeting at the edge for neon night. Uh, They had a concert warming up. There were donuts hanging from the ceiling. Uh, I can't imagine. So if you feel things thumping over here, it's them over there jumping up and side down. So, so it's just Wednesday nights are good around here. And tonight, after a little over three years, we're going to finish up the Old Testament. We are finishing the Old Testament tonight. It feels like such a milestone because a little over three years, three years ago, January... We read the words, in the beginning, and none of you believed it would be such a long story. Um, But tonight, we get there. So, open up your Bibles. I'll give you a very, very quick kind of recap of last week of Zechariah, because we can't spend much time there if we're going to get Malachi finished tonight. But this was for last week. Last week, the Z crying, Zachariah. It's just a, a memory hook to help you remember Zachariah. And if you look off into the distance, you see the cross and the words, the Messiah. So Zachariah looks forward to the cross. Zachariah was, uh, it was meant to encourage the people to finish the temple, to finish the, the city when they got back from exile. You remember they got back from Babylonian exile after the Persians took over Babylon and uh, They started off like gangbusters, and then they just kind of procrastinated and got busy doing other things rather than rebuilding the temple and and rebuilding the city. So Zechariah was there to encourage them to do that and uh, holding out hope for the future so that they would be inspired to do that. Now, Zechariah is a very difficult book. It's probably one of the more difficult books we've gone through. You would think that would be Ezekiel or or Isaiah, but no, Zechariah is really tough. And it's tough for a few reasons. One, because the chronology is all jumbled up, and so it's not tracking this way. Sometimes you have present day and future times, and uh, it's just jumbled up chronology, which makes reading the book and studying the book hard. And then there's all these visions. There's like six visions in there, dreams that Zechariah has. And, and anytime you're doing dreams in the Old Testament, they are complicated and they're, they're hard to translate. So makes the book hard. Uh, some of the most pointed prophecies about Jesus as the Messiah are found in Zechariah. And we talked about those. Here's the outline we followed in Zechariah. We talked about the challenge to the people and then the visions that happened in the, in the larger portion of the center of the book and then the messianic kin- kingdom. And so let me give you the, we're going to run through the takeaways really quickly and then we'll get straight into Malachi. One takeaway, everyone needs encouragement. I told you if, if a person is breathing, then they need encouragement. If, if a person is upright, their heart is beating, they need encouragement. We all need that. And And we just kind of quit doing that. 
How many of you would say that, those of you that are married, that when you first got married, your spouse was really encouraging, and then as time went, it just kind of kept falling off, right? You, can you relate to that? Show of hands. Yeah, yeah, if your spouse is sitting right by you, you probably don't want to raise your hand, but, but yeah, that's the way it works. We just, we, we start off really gangbusters, encouraging. We do that when our children are little, and then they get in school, and they start messing up, and we stop encouraging, and we start threatening, uh, but everyone needs encouragement. God will return to us if we return to him. Why? Because he's never the one who leaves. We are. We're the ones who, who drift away. So we must return to him, and then he returns to us. Anything done for God must be done by God and through his spirit. We are not capable of anything. I think in John 15 it says, apart from me you can do nothing. We, we really can't. We need to do, and, and the good things we need to do, we need to do through his spirit, not through our efforts. Because there's this verse in Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So that's something we always need to remember that it's not good enough to do the work of the Lord if you're doing the work of the Lord through your own strength. You have to do the work of the Lord through the Spirit of the Lord. And then everything hinges on Jesus. His work of salvation with his first coming and his work of judgment in his second coming. Those are kind of the bookends. And everything hinges on him. The Old Testament hinges on him. Everything hinges on him. So that's a really quick flyover of Zechariah. So here's the last book of the Old Testament, and it's the book of Malachi. Malachi. You see this mallet? That's to remember you, uh, remind you of the book of Malachi. And what that mallet is doing is breaking up hearts of stone to get to the heart of flesh on the inside. This is kind of what Malachi is all about. Malachi is about getting through hearts that have become hardened. Getting through hearts that have become hardened. So let's look at, hello, there we go. Let's look at the prophet. Let's look at the context of the book, because we always need to look at the context, and then we'll look at an outline, and then we'll wade through that. The name Malachi means messenger. And we don't know for sure whether this was, book was written by a prophet by the name of Malachi, or if that's just the title, the messenger who wrote the book. And you'll find, you know, people that believe both ways, and it's really kind of immaterial to me. I'm going to assume that it's the prophet Malachi. But the word Malachi means messenger. And it's really about all we know. We don't know much about him other than the name. Uh, we know that he was an intense patriot for Judah and Jerusalem. He's really strong nationalistic when it comes to Judah and Jerusalem. We also know that he's a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now remember, Ezra and Nehemiah came back from exile to lead the people to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city. It's really kind of confusing for new students of the Bible because Ezra and Nehemiah, if you look in your Bible, they're way to the left of Psalms. They're way to the left of Psalms, but then we start getting into the minor prophets, and their time frame is in the time frame of Malachi. So you have Ezra and Nehemiah books over here, or from your vantage point over here, 
and then you get all the way over to the last book of the Old Testament, and that's Malachi. Well, he's contemporary with Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, probably wrote just prior to Nehemiah's second visit. Nehemiah makes two visits back home to Jerusalem. And it's probably just prior to that. Uh, interesting thing about this, Malachi is the last prophet, probably the last prophet to speak before New Testament times. Last prophet in the Old Testament. And, and the interesting thing is his, I mean, his, we've seen prophecies that are poetic. We've seen prophecies that are, are very imaginative, visionary kind of prophecies. This prophecy is more like a teacher. He deals with disputes. And it, as a matter of fact, there's like six disputes in the book of Malachi. And so he says one thing, the people say, well, how can you say that? And then he says, this is how I can say that. It happens six times in the book. So it's kind of a didactic, kind of a teaching um, approach, kind of teaching argumentative style of, of writing, which is very fascinating. I like it. You'll see more of that when you get into it. Um, ultimately, Malachi reminds God's people that he specifically chose them and bless their nation for the purpose of being blessing and representation to the others. But their disobedience hindered them from following through. And so it weakens God's impact in the world. It weakens this godly culture that was meant to be an impact. And it's really interesting to always remember, God chose this group of people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, if you will. He chose them to be a special group of people, not a favorite group of people. They were chosen specifically for a task. They were chosen to be the instrument that he was going to use to reach the rest of the world. And so if they are his instrument to be used to reach the rest of the world, and they slack off, they backslide, they become sinful, they become wicked, then his influence in the world is diluted. And this is important for us because we have the same task. And if we fall off of our task of living in this world in such a way that people see Christ and are drawn to Christ, then our influence is diluted. And the world's already on a downhill slide anyway, so we can't afford to speed that up by being lax and lazy in what we've been called to do as his witnesses. So this is why the book of Malachi is so important. Let's look at the context of Malachi. Context. Malachi was written about a thousand years since Moses. So when Moses first calls the people out of Egypt and they become a nation, a thousand years later, Malachi issues his prophecies. And it's about a hundred years after returning from Babylon. Okay, so they've been back from Babylon, Babylonian captivity. They've been back rebuilding for about a hundred years when Malachi speaks to them. Uh, it, by Malachi's time, the temple had already been completed and sacrifices were being made there, but their worship of God was much more ritual than real in relationship. I've been reading slides and not showing them to you. Their worship of, of God was much more ritual than real. It just was. And and so, consequently, there was this deterioration 
Because their worship was more ritual than it was real, they began to deteriorate as a people following God. And when they begin to deteriorate, everything does. One of the laws of physics deals with entropy. It means that everything is naturally on its way to falling apart. You know? I am pushing 60 now. I feel that law of physics every single day. You know, if you leave a car alone for enough years, it rusts and falls apart. You know, everything is, is deteriorating unless you do something to turn it around. And this is how it was with God's people. God brings them out of captivity. They begin to build. But you know, everything, unless you maintain the covenant that God gives you and, and, and the things in the, that he's told you to do, then everything begins to deteriorate. And that's where it was with the people in Malachi's time. And so he addresses the deterioration. That's what Malachi's doing, is addressing the deterioration, addressing the hardness of their heart. All right, and here's the outline. Very simple outline. This actually comes from... Um, from the Bible, from Baker's Bible Handbook, I believe. I just, I, I found it to be just simple outline, so I robbed it, all right? So it's not mine. The privilege of the nation. That deals with the past. You can find that in chapter 1, 1 through 5. And then the pollution of the nation. That deals with the present. Remember I told you they had deteriorated, they'd become hard-hearted. That deals with the present, Malachi is. Chapter 1, verse 6 through chapter 3, Verse 15. Now there's only four chapters here. And then the last one is the promise of the nation, nation, and that deals with the future. And you see that in the last part, mainly in chapter 4, but chapter 3, verse 16 through the end of chapter 4. So let's walk through this really quickly. Make sure we can finish Malachi this evening. All right, if you brought your Bible, let's look at the privilege of the nation. Look at Malachi chapter 1. Let's read the first five verses. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Here's that dispute thing. God says, I've loved you. They say, well, how have you loved us? And then here's the answer. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, what that means is not that God hated Esau. That, that's not what it means at all. It means that he's rejected what Esau was doing. He rejected Esau's way of life. He didn't reject Esau as a person. He rejected what Esau was doing. So it's not really a hate so much. It's, it's more of a... It's more of when your children defiantly disobey you. And you could wring their necks, but you still love them. Okay? You reject that attitude. You reject what they're doing. You don't reject them. So this is what it's talking about. And, and so God says, I've loved you. And they said, well, prove it. How have you loved us? And God said, hey, I chose you, your descendants, over Esau. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says... We are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will call, be called the wicked country and the people from whom the Lord is angry forever. Those are harsh words. 
Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. How have you loved us? The people began to drift away. They, they just drifted. They drifted away from love for God. They drifted away from obedience to God. Life gradually got harder when they do that. Because if you drift away from God, life is going to get harder. I mean, not immediately, but eventually it gets harder. And it got so much, got hard, harder so much that the people of, of Israel, the people in Jerusalem at the time said, well, God can't love us. Look how hard it is. Look how hard this is for us. God surely doesn't love us. If he loved us, it would be easier. And, and so, isn't that a common occurrence for us? I mean, doesn't that happen to us? You know, God, if you really loved me, I wouldn't have had that accident where I have to make all these major car repairs. I mean, let's not say anything about I was tailgating and following way too close but if you really loved me, this wouldn't happen. We do that. And, and so they had decided they didn't really need to follow God and obey God's covenant. And then things got hard. And they said, well, see, you don't love us or things wouldn't be that hard. That happens to us. We ignore health risk and we keep smoking and we get cancer and say, God, if you loved me, why, why do I have this cancer? You know, we stop loving our spouse the way God calls us to. And then we wonder why our marriage isn't working and why God doesn't fix it. So a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times things happen because they're natural consequences of our actions, and yet we want to believe that God should fix this. And, and God wants to turn us around and bring us out of that, but he's not just going to do this. I think I've told you this before. It, to me, any God worth his salt can just snap his fingers and make things better. Yeah, that's pulling a rabbit out of the hat. Any God should be able to do that. But the God that says, you know what? I will walk with you through this and keep you upright and help you come out of this and I'll walk through the mud with you, that's the bigger God. That's the bigger God. You know? And you know what that's like. There's been some things you've, your kids have wanted you to just fix for them and you knew that was not best, but you would show them how to get out of the spot they were in. And, and so this is what's happening here with this first dispute. God's saying you are a privileged nation. God through Malachi points out that God's love is as evidenced by the fact that God chose to be in relationship with them. And he chose to use them as instruments. God chose us. If you're in Christ, God chose you. That's, that is more evidence of how much God loves you than whether your air conditioner in your car goes out. It's way more evidence of that. So this is the privileged nation part of the outline. And, and so there's the first dispute. The first dispute is they're just disregarding God's love. They're just saying, you know, things are hard, so you obviously don't love us. And God is saying, let me show you why I say I have loved you. So there's the first out of six disputes. So now let's go to the second part of this outline, the pollution of the nation. God's saying, you're a privileged nation. That deals with the past. I chose you in the past. But now the nation is polluted in the present. So Malachi begins to talk about the pollution of the nation. And he starts by addressing the priest. Now remember 
When God addressed the priest, you cannot check out in this passage of Scripture and say, well, I'm not a priest or I'm not a pastor or I'm not a preacher, so this doesn't pertain to me. You can't do that because New Testament tells us that if you're a follower of Christ, we're all a royal priesthood. So when, what he tells the priest here applies to us also. So look at chapter 1, verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priest who despise my name. But you say, here's the dispute, but you say, how have we despised your name? This is the second dispute. Because God's going to go on and say, you despise my name by ignoring my covenant. Verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? Now remember, they were told that when you bring an animal to sacrifice, it's to be pure. It's to be spotless. Without spot, without blemish. It's supposed to be the best of the best. And so the Lord says, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of the Lord that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that you were one, um, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that I might not, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. He's saying, you know, I'd rather have you just close down the doors of the church than bring all of these rotten sacrifices. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And he's talking to the priests, those who should know better. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it. When you say the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. They're, they're basically saying, you know what, this is such a drag. This is so demanding. This is so tiresome to do this, to offer these sacrifices. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept it from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. My name will be feared among the nations. So the priest, the nation of Israel in the beginning... From Moses on, when they received the law of God, God told them specifically what kind of sacrifices to bring. Again, sacrifices without blemish, without spot. Sacrifices that were, that were good, 
not lame or not sick. So they knew this, and no one should know this better than the priests. This is what they do day in and day out. But they had started offering less than the best. Animals that had blemishes and spots and problems and were sick or lame, and they were not offering their best. And so they probably rationalized that Jerusalem was still in dire economic straits. Things were still not good in Jerusalem. The temple was rebuilt, but the walls were not. The city was not. It was economic hardship on everybody. So they probably thought, you know what? We just need to cut corners here because we don't have the best. But can I tell you, every time you cut corners with God, you're not off just a little bit. You're off a lot. You know, if I shift my, my path one degree and I'm only going to the back of the room, I'm not going to be off by far. If I shift my path one degree and I'm going to London, I'm going to be way off. And, and so they had basically maybe rationalized that, you know, we just can't do this right now, and they cut corners. But that put them way off. Isn't that applicable to you and I? Now, I, I'm not one of those people that believe that your righteousness depends upon your church attendance. I don't believe that. Okay? But it amazes me how people will say, you know, we got up on Sunday and yeah, we worked pretty hard Saturday, getting our house ready for masters or whatever. And we just got up Sunday and we just were sore and, and we just decided we'd stay home. Would you do that with your cardiologist? You know, I woke up this morning, just not feeling it, so, nah, I'm just not going to show up. Or if your kid's teacher called you and said, you know, I need to see you now, would you go, you know what, I'm a little sore from working out in the yard, and I just don't think. We wouldn't do that with anything else. But we'll do it with church or with the things of God. So what does that tell you? It tells you we're doing the same thing that the priests were doing. They were taking something here at this level and elevating it higher than God. This is more important than God is. And I know that sounds harsh, and I don't mean to be so preachy here, but we have to see how easy it is to fall into that. You know, it's, I, I, I know the offering plate's coming around on Sunday, and I, just, I, I can give a little bit. But the Saturday before, you were at Costco buying that new flat-screen TV. You know? And believe me, I love flat screen TVs. I'd like to have a new one myself. Uh, but it's so easy to give God the lame, the blemish, the spot, the, the minute, and give what we want to us. And so this is what's happening here. Uh, from a New Testament standpoint, you and I are priests, and, and we are just as guilty of this a lot of times as the priest were. It's easy for us to rationalize things too. You know, we got a lot of bills coming in, so let's just wait and see how the bills shake out and then we'll give or, or whatever, you know. Yeah, I know they need help in children's or with preschool, but you know, we have kids at home and I'd like to be away from them for a while and so no, I just can't do that. And, and we do that. 
we give less than our best to God. So the priests were supposed to guide the people in doing just the opposite, and they were doing they were teaching the people to give their less than their best to God also. And, and, and God tells them basically in the covenant, the original covenant, God says, if you obey me and you follow the laws of my covenant, then I will bless you. But if you don't, then, and then there's a whole list of things that are going to happen to them. You can find this, and we won't turn there tonight, but you can find this in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And in Deuteronomy 28 verse 15 the covenant says, but if you don't obey me and follow the, the, the covenant I give you, then here are the curses that are going to come upon you. So this is what's happening in Malachi. Malachi is basically saying, God told you way back in the time of Moses, you obey him, follow the covenant, this is what happens. You don't, this is what happens. And Malachi is saying, this is exactly what's going on. So then you get down a little bit further in chapter 2, and you get... The third dispute. So the first dispute is God says, hey, I've loved you. And they say, well, how have you done that? And so God has to argue that. Second dispute is God saying, basically, he's saying, I'm a father, but you're not honoring me as a father. You're not honoring me as master. And they're saying, well, how's that work? And God says, because you're breaking the covenant in, in the sacrifices that you're bringing. But the third dispute says you're breaking covenant with your spouse. So look at chapter 2. Look at verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Then why are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless and abomination and has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, and he, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Okay? So, so basically God is saying, not only are you not keeping your covenant with me, you're not keeping your covenant with one another. You're not keeping your covenant with one another. Uh, let's go on a little further. Look at verse 13. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears and with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards your offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? The answer, because the Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Now he's still talking to the priest here. To whom you have been faithless though she is your companion, your wife, by covenant. There's the word, by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of his spirit in their union? And what has the one God seeking? What was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. So not only were the priests breaking their covenant with God, they were breaking their covenant with their spouses. And 
Note the truth that God gives here concerning marriage. Here's the truth God gives. That marriage is not just a joint agreement between a man and a woman. It's a spiritual joining which unifies a man and a woman before the witness of God. This is all in this chapter. To break the marriage vow is to break a covenant made in the witness of God and to tear into an indivisible spiritual union. I find it interesting that when he's talking about marriage, look at how often he mentions the spirit. So guard yourself in your spirit. He says it again at the end of verse, seven, uh, verse uh, 16. Guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. The spiritual piece of marriage is larger than we even consider. It really is. Now, there's a lot of shoe leather and, and learning how to fight and learning how to communicate, learning how to handle your money and all those skills and techniques that you have to figure out in marriage. But it's a spiritual component. And so when God says that they are breaking the covenant with their wife, he doesn't just talk about them marrying other wives. And, and, and when he talks about marrying foreign wives, you have to understand, God is not saying you can't marry, marry someone from your own, for lack of a better word, race. What he's saying is you can't marry someone who doesn't believe like you do, who doesn't follow the same God you do, who doesn't have the same faith and morality you do. And this is what the priests were doing. But he, he doesn't say it's that, just that's the problem. He says it's a spiritual issue. You're breaking faith in your spirit with them and with God. And, and this is one of the clearest pieces. It says, did he not, verse 15, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? You know, when, when you go to a wedding and you hear the, the, the passage about the two become one flesh, that they get married and they become one. A lot of us think sex. We think they're going to consummate their marriage and they become one flesh. No, this is a spiritual piece. There's a lot of people out there having sex and they're not one spirit. Marriage is different. That's why when I have couples in my office who are living together and we start talking about marriage and they say, well, what's the difference we're already living together, we're paying bills together, we're raising kids together, we're having sex together, so there shouldn't be any difference. No, there is a spiritual difference here that makes all the difference. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. I feel like I need to get off my soapbox for a minute. But, but this is a really big deal. And, and this is the example that the priests were setting for the people. And you say, well, that was then. But if you look at divorce rates now among God's people, they're not much different than among those who are not God's people. We're setting an example. We're setting an example. And I remember when I was talking to my children about, my my daughters about the kind of guy they should look for, they blew me off. Because they said, Dad, you're an anomaly. There's no one like you. And I told them, you are blowing smoke up my skirt right now. That's not true. 
there is a spiritual component and we have to set the examples. And, and this is the, the piece in, in Malachi that greatly applies to us. All right, that's the third dispute, breaking covenant with a spouse. Let's look at the fourth dispute, doubting God's justice. Doubting God's justice. Chapter 2, starting verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom I you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who will stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. So it's interesting that it starts off with this people saying, basically God saying, man, you're just wearing me out with your words. It's just wah, 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 wah. You sound like Charlie Brown's teacher. Just wah, 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 wah. You're wearing me out. And, and you're saying, well, how have we done that? And he says, basically what you're telling me is that because the bad guys seem to be getting off free, that I love them more than I love you. That I'm not really a God of justice because I'm letting the bad guys get away with whatever they want to. And, and we're still having to struggle here to get by. Ever felt that way? Ever felt that way? I remember being a hospice chaplain in Fort Worth, Texas, and I was sitting with one of my hospice clients, and, and it was a rough part of town. There was gunfire going out down the block or so, and, and that was common. And I remember sitting with this man who had been an African-American preacher, loved spending time with him. But he was dying of cancer, and kids in his neighborhood were getting shot. And the drug dealers were driving nice cars, wearing nice suits, eating whatever they wanted to. And I felt this same thing. And God is basically saying, look, I am, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to do it on my time and in my way. But there is coming a refining. And it's interesting that when he talks about, okay, I'm going to make this right. Just be patient. I'm going to give you, I'm going to bring the justice you want. And isn't it amazing that we all want justice for the other guy? But we want grace. We don't want justice for us. We want grace and mercy. But we want the other guy to pay. But God says he's going to bring justice. And then, then he jumps immediately to this verse. Behold, I send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Who's he talking about? Say it loud because my hearing's not good. He's talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist. You'll find a reference of this in the Gospels. Now, a lot of people believe that it's Elijah. You're going to hear another reference to this at the end of Malachi. But he's talking about, look, I'm going to send, not only am I sending the Messiah that's going to set things right, I'm going to send a messenger ahead of him. So that's the fourth dispute, doubting God's justice. Fifth dispute, 
the need to return to God, the need to return to God. If you're encouraging someone to return to God, what would you encourage them to do? Read the Bible. Pray. Repent. This is interesting because when Malachi tells the people to return to God, here's what he tells them. Look at chapter 3. He starts off by talking about God's unchanging faithfulness. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, are, excuse me, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. That's a powerful statement. God says, look, I don't change because if I had, you'd be out of here. You're still alive. You're still thriving because I don't change. And then he goes on to say, from the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts. Here's the dispute. But you say, how shall we return to you? Here's the answer. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Interesting. When we talk about returning to God and I say, what's the first thing we think of? We think of reading your Bible, praying, repenting. When Malachi talks about returning to God, he says, pay your tithe. Give your contributions. And we don't usually think about that when we talk about returning to God. We want to we make that optional. We want to make that, you know, if, if I have more check at the end of the month than I have bills, then maybe. And, and Malachi is saying, you want to return to God? Here's where you start. Do this. Because I, I find it interesting because I would have said the same thing. Pray, read your word, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But there's no shoe leather in those things if you really think about it. But when you have to open up your wallet or open up your checkbook or go online and deplete your checking account of a fair salaries of money and you do that on a regular basis because God calls for it, there's shoe leather in that. Yes? I think you said oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and face it, God does not need our money. It's not like he's trying to worry about how he's going to make his mortgage payment. Right? He doesn't need it. We need it. We need to do that because we need to get the priorities right. And, and whatever you spend the most of your time, attention talent and treasure on that's your priority and and god is saying that it goes on let's let's look at verse 9 you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me the whole nation of you bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house they're referring to the temple so there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test says the lord of hosts 
If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now remember, this is an agricultural country or agricultural culture. And, and so money came from crops. And if you didn't get rain, you didn't have crops. And, and God's basically saying, I can give you all the crops you need. I can give you all the rain you need. He goes on in verse 11. I will rebuke the devourer. Not only will I produce the resources, but I'll keep them from getting eat up. In that time, it would have been locusts. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that, you will not, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field. Shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be the land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. He says, he basically says, return to me by giving back to me what I've called you to give. Why? Here's why this was important. One, because it was part of the covenant, and they were just breaking the covenant. We're saying, okay, God, we're going to choose what we obey and what we not obey, and we really like to keep our resources, so we're not going to obey that one. But it's part of the covenant. That's why it was important. It's part of maintaining the care for both the temple and the priest. That's why it's important. It's part of their testimony. It says in verse 12, then all the nations will call you blessed. So it's part of the, and because if God has access to our wallet, then he has access to our walk. If God has access to my wallet, then he has access to almost everything. And, and this is why that's important. And so notice God's challenge in his promise said, put me to the test. This is the challenge. I challenge you to try this. And he says, if you do, not only will I give you the resources you need, I will protect them from being devoured. And, and I can't tell you how many times, it's not been many. Actually, I can't remember of one. I remember when I was playing with giving to God. I hadn't committed I was playing with giving to God, and every time I'd say, well, no, I can't do that this week because we really, I need to put tires on a car or whatever. And sure enough, that week, like the air conditioner would go out too. You know? So yeah, I kept money, but then I needed more. And God says, I'll do two things. I will provide the resources you need, and I will keep them from getting eat up with other things. But you gotta, you gotta quit robbing me. You gotta quit robbing me. Uh, yes? Right. They didn't go out and borrow money for their new charity. Exactly. They didn't have a charity. They, they didn't go out and, uh, you know, have an $80,000 school bill because they had to go off to college. And so our society is so inundated with debt. Mm-hmm. Yes. Except for those items perhaps 
<laughs> yep. Well, and the problem is not, <clears throat> debt, is, debt is a problem in, in our country and with our, our families, and I can't tell you how many marriages I'm dealing with that I, one of the first things we have to do is we have to start with a budget and, and, and clean up some stuff like that. So, yes, it is a problem. But, but borrowing money is not as much of the problem because Scripture talks about borrowing money. It's the reason we're borrowing money. And, and we borrow money because we don't trust God to provide we borrow money because we got to keep up with the Joneses. We borrow money for a host of reasons other than true need. And you're right. In this culture, there was no social service programs. There was no bank where you could get money. Now, you could get a loan, but it was harsh. And, and, and so they, they had to either trust God or trust themselves, which is no different than us. You either have to trust God or you have to trust yourself. And, and I'm not against borrowing money. I'm against foolishly, unnecessarily, for the wrong reasons, borrowing money. You know, I don't know about you, but I can't just go out and buy a house with cash. I, I just, you know, most of us can't. Uh, but I sure enough can buy a 1,700 square foot house as opposed to a 4,000 square foot house. I can live within my means. And I can't even, I can't do any of those things until I've honored God with the first part of it and then live well for what's left. See, in my house, we had to say, well, because we tithe, we can't afford that house. Rather than saying, we can afford that house, we just can't afford to tithe. Those are two different things. And, and so, this is how God is saying, you're, you're robbing me, you're, honor, you're, you're dishonoring me. And, and so, when he says, return to God, he says, hey, start here. And this would have been really important in that time, because remember, they're trying to rebuild Jerusalem. They needed the funds. You know, they, they needed that. And we are so blessed here, but some magic fairy didn't come down and wave a wand and just give it all to us. There's 120 years of people sacrificially giving so that we can... And, and I'm just telling you that if all of us did that, we would not have another worry. But we struggle because only a few do that. And I remember tithing. This is not meant to be a sermon on tithing, but I remember when I first got convicted about this, and I ran the numbers. I opened up the checkbook. I looked at all the bills, and I looked at my wife and said, this won't work. I'm not a great math genius, but I can add and subtract, and this won't work. And we finally just had to say, we're doing it anyway. And it's worked every time. Every time. Sometimes I didn't know how. But it always worked. And if you and I, if we, as a body of believers called Warren Baptist Church, if we would all do this, we would turn the world upside down. From here. But there is this 
hardness of heart and, and this issue about robbing God. I'm going to use up my time. I've got to quit soapboxing. Let's go on. Sixth dispute. Following God makes no difference. Now, this is kind of related to the fourth dispute. You know, the fourth dispute was they doubted God's justice. This is kind of the same thing. They're related. Uh, look at chapter 3. Look at verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Verse 14. You have said it is in vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed and the evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So it's kind of the same argument as before. You know, notice that I started to say there's no response to this dispute, but there really is. The rest of the book is a response to this dispute. But that takes us into the last part of the outline, the promise of the nation. The promise of the nation. When you start in verse 16, <clears throat> excuse me, and go on through, the book ends with the final response to this dispute. And basically God says that what looks like a lack of justice and follow through is actually an issue of his timing. It's, it's an issue of his timing. My wife and I used to get together and we, I mean, you know your kids. You know how they're going to mess up. I mean, you know them well enough to know what's going to happen. And so we would get together and plan the appropriate discipline for when X happened and when Y happened and when Z happened. And so we'd be prepared when they did what we expected them to do. We knew exactly how we were going to handle it. But my kids were ingenious and once in a while they would come up with something we hadn't planned for. And so I would look at them and say, you are so busted. And they'd say, what are you going to do? And I'd say, I don't know yet. I'm going to get with your mom. We're going to figure this out. We're going to take our time. But it's coming. Which was worse punishment for them than anything because they were just waiting for the hammer to drop all the time. And, and, and God basically says, you can think that I don't care about what the evil, evil people are doing, you can think that the evil people get off great and you're being punished. You can think whatever you want, but it's an issue of timing. And face it, if you and I are on the wrong side of the law, so to speak, if we're on the wrong side of God, don't we want him to be patient with us until we come back around? We don't want him to lower the hammer on us just like that and, and be just with us. We want him to be patient with us until we get it right. And so God's saying, this is an issue of timing. But he promises that a day will come. You can look in verse 17 of chapter 3. In, that, in the day, you can go to chapter 4, verse 1. The day is coming. And again in verse 1. The day is coming. He basically says, there is a day coming. So he encourages the people to keep the covenant with God. You can see that in verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses and the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. And then again, he talks in verse 5 about the great and awesome day of the Lord. So there's a day coming. And, uh, and we're told, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This is a reference, a lot of people thought it was a reference to Elijah. But in the New Testament, you see this being applied to John the Baptist. 
So he ends with this in verse 6, and we will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then God goes silent for 400 years. Those are the last words God utters for 400 years. What happens after the 400 years? We're going to get to that, believe it or not. We're going to get to that. Let's do some takeaways, though. Here's some takeaways. Before we do the takeaways, look at this list of disputes one more time. Isn't this the state of our culture? Isn't this the state of our culture where we disregard God's love? And where we're breaking God's covenant with a lot of disregard? Where we're breaking covenant with our spouse? Where we're doubting the justice of God? Where we need to return to him? Where we sometimes we think following God makes no difference? Isn't this our culture? And, and not just our culture, but isn't this us sometimes? This is why this book is so important, because we live in these things, and sometimes these things live in us. And we're the priest that God needs to talk to. So, here's some takeaways from the book of Malachi. God's pursuit of us is consistent and persistent. It's our pursuit of him that tends to be intermediate, intermittent and flighty. It's not God's pursuit of us. He's consistent and persistent in pursuing us. It's us pursuing him that's the problem. Because we get a little erratic and helter-skelter in that. Okay, I'm going to buzz through these kind of quick so they'll be online and you can find them online in the media section. But here's another one. God demands our best, not just because he deserves it, and he does, but also because it serves as a testimony to others of God's goodness and his greatness. We give God our best, one, because he deserves it, because he's God and he's holy and pure and he's righteous and and he's been gracious to us and has saved us. He deserves it. But how we treat God and when we give God our best, that serves as a testimony to the people around us, to the world around us. So when we're not giving God our best, what does that tell the people around us? He must not be that great. Or he doesn't really care. Or there's other things more important than him. So we must give our God our best because he deserves it, but because it's also part of the testimony. God is not pleased with worship that merely goes through the motions. This haunts me every Sunday. Every Sunday. Because it is uber easy for me to come to worship on Sunday and either be working in my head because I work on Sundays uh, or, or just be going through the motions. And, and he is not pleased. He's not pleased just because I showed up at church. He wants me to come and worship him and not just go through the motions. Whether it's prayer, whether it's singing, whether it's letting him speak to me through his word, whatever it is. Just going through the motions is not pleasing to him. Marriage is not just a personal agreement between a man and a woman. It is a spiritual commitment between a man and a woman and God. Dissolving a marriage for reasons not sanctioned in Scripture is destructive to the individuals 
to the relationships and to their testimony of God. Notice relationships and individuals, it's plural. It's destructive to both parties. It's destructive to children. It's destructive to the relationships they have. It's destructive to the friends around them. It just is. There is no way around it. Now, I understand that sometimes, I, I love what our pastor says, in cases of abuse, in cases of adultery, in cases of abandonment, sometimes there are no options. No other choice. I get that. I'm not, I work with this all day long, so I'm not hard-hearted here. But that doesn't mean we lower the bar. It just doesn't. And, and if, if, if you decide to leave your spouse, just because you're not as... Just because things are not like they used to be, join the club. Okay? If you decide to leave your spouse simply because you look at them and go, you know what, I don't know if I want to do this. Join the club. If you decide to divorce your spouse because you'd really like to reach out and put your hands on them, join the club. It's not reason enough. If you're being hurt, if they're abandoning you, if there's adultery, absolutely, then that needs to be taken care of. Can the marriage be salvaged? Possible. Depends on the two of you. But we cannot lower this bar anymore because this is what's killing us as a nation. This is what's killing our children. It's what's killing our relationships. And if second marriages fail at a greater rate than first marriages, then it just becomes exponential. So if you've been through a divorce, if you have kids that have been through I'm not beating up on you. I promise I'm not. Because you know what? I have a daughter that's been through it. So I get it. But we just can't lower the bar. That's enough of that soapbox. Two more, and then we're done. Failure to give back to God in tithes and contributions robs God, not of resources he needs, but of obedience he deserves. And that which robs God of our obedience robs us of blessings. This is why it's important. It's not because he needs the stuff. God doesn't need our stuff. He needs our obedience. And so when we don't tithe and, and give offerings, we rob him of the obedience. And when we rob him of obedience, it robs us of blessing. That's the simplest way I know how to put it. Here's the last takeaway. When it looks like those who ignore God are doing better than you, stay the course. There will be a day when God makes all of that right. Stay the course. This is the book of Malachi. I love this book. And it's a great way to end our study in the New Testament. It only took three years. Who knows what the New Testament is going to take. Um, but we're going to go there and see how long it takes. Maybe Jesus will come back before. Just may, he may have mercy on you and say, oh, they've had enough. Let's just go get them. But if he doesn't, we're going to make it through that too. So... I know we're about five minutes over, but anybody have question or comment or concern or confusion or something we need to clear up? Yeah, one real quick. Yes. Along with this last takeaway, I heard a preacher from Alabama in a small, tiny church in North Carolina say, I don't know if he coined this phrase or he took it from somebody else. If you are a Christian, 
this life is as bad as it gets. If you're not a Christian, this is as good as it gets. Oh, that's great. He, he's saying he knew somebody that said, if you're a Christian, this life is as bad as it's going to get for you. But if you're not a Christian, this life is as good as it's going to get for you. That's a really good statement. I like that. There's a movie out there. I don't know if this is where this phrase came from, but, but the, the saying goes like this. In the end, it'll all be all right. So if it's not all right, it's not the end. I'll leave you with that one. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this study in the Old Testament, especially for this book of Malachi, because it is pertinent to us. It's pertinent to the, the world in which we live. It's pertinent to the things we slide into. And, and it's so easy for us to become nonchalant, and then being nonchalant turns into being hard-hearted, and, and we don't even know it sometimes. And so this is important for us. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful for this this book. I'm grateful for your word. I'm grateful that we still have the privilege and the opportunity to study it because that's not allowed in a lot of places in our world. And, uh, but that makes it, Father, makes us all the more responsible. If we have this blessing and this gift and this freedom to study your word and we study it and don't do anything with it, we are all the more guilty. So, Father, take something that we talked about this evening, something that was read, something that was studied, and apply it to our heart and apply it to our minds and apply it to our feet and hands, Father. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.